Good morning, saints. Good morning, sinners. Just checking, just checking. Might have some work to do today. Really, I welcome everybody here today, um, especially due to the fact that we just last week kicked off a new series that is really based on a question. It's a short one. What's your why? What's your why? I believe that God is calling us back to the answer to that question. So our theme for 2017 for Heart of Life is just that. It's what's your why? If anybody's got a why to live for, it ought to be those of us who follow Jesus. So before we dig in this morning, um, just reminding you, um, in, in case uh, you forgot, if, uh, if you want some of the things out at the, at the eye center, you can stop by when we're done today. There's some decals out there. It's just got the Y, the W-Y-W on it. What's your Y? You can put it on a coffee cup, your forehead, whatever you want to do, just, just to remind you. This year, this is, this is what we believe God's calling us to answer this question. Um, there are shirts out there if you want to get you a shirt. Pretty cool looking shirt, it's black, what else do you need to know, right? Black's where it's at, so get you a shirt if you wanna get a shirt. We don't make any money on any of that stuff. They're purely just tools to help us remember and to call us back to what we really think God is calling us to look at this year. I'm convinced that even if you don't yet consider yourself to be a Jesus follower. Um, Even if you might say today, Jeff, I don't even know that I would say I'm a spiritual person. Well, I believe that what I'm about to say is true for any organization, any business, any team. I think it applies across the board. This is the statement. It's not enough to just know what you do. The greatest success is tied to knowing why you do what you do. I'm going to say it again. It is not enough for any organization. It is not enough for any business. It is not enough for any team to just know what you do. The greatest success is tied to knowing why you do what you do. And the warning, money is not the why. If you got a business and you think money's the why, I'm telling you, in the long run, it will fail. No great organizations or businesses are built on the why of making money. Because the why is tied to the heart. The why is tied to trust. In business, if you hire people simply because they can do a job, then they will work for your money. But if you hire people who believe what you believe, they will work for you with blood, sweat, and tears. You understand what I'm saying? The why really does make all the difference. Let me give you a quick example. Most people have never heard 
of Samuel Pierpont Langley. Now, I'm sure some of you have because you are exceptional, all right? But most of us have never heard of Samuel Pierpont Langley. This is him. Back in the early 20th century, the pursuit of flight, man-powered flight, was everything. And Langley was at the front of that pursuit. Now, he had what most of us in business would consider to be the perfect recipe for success. Because if you're in business and people ask you, I mean, what's going to make a business go or what's going to typically make a business fail? Typically, three things are mentioned. One, simply, it's like, do I have enough money to do what I got to do? Is there enough capital? Two, do I have the right people working for me or is it the wrong people working on this job? And then three, is the market good? Or is the market bad? Those are typically the three things that everybody mentions, which did it succeed, did it fail? Langley was given $50,000 by the War Department of the United States to figure out this flying machine thing. Now, you might say, $50,000, that's not that much. Well, I still think $50,000 is a good chunk of change. But in 1900, it was all the money he would ever spend on such a task. 115 years ago, it was all the money that you would ever need to, in, to take such an endeavor. He had plenty of money. Not only did Langley hold a seat at Harvard, he worked at the Smithsonian. In other words, he rubbed elbows with the brightest of the brightest he could hire the most brilliant minds to join him in this task. And the market was fantastic. The New York Times followed him everywhere he went, just waiting to see it happen. Langley had what we would consider to be a recipe for success. But most of us have never heard of him. You have, however, heard of the Wright brothers, right? Orville and Wilbur. Yeah, what a great pair, right? Orville and Wilbur. It's just great names. Orville and Wilbur had no money. They paid for their dream from the proceeds of the bicycle shop that they operated. Not one person on their team had a college education. Not even Orville. Not even Wilbur. And the New York Times followed them nowhere. And so what was the difference? The difference was that the Wright brothers were driven by a purpose. They were driven by a belief. They were driven by a why. That a flying machine could change the course of the world. They found a team who would believe that with them. And through blood and sweat and tears, the stories are told that most days they would take five sets of parts with them when they would go out to test because typically they would crash five times before supper. Langley wanted to be rich. Langley wanted to be famous. And so Langley had a team who worked for a paycheck. In 1903, 
December the 17th, the Wright brothers took flight. And there was nobody there to see it. The rest of the world found out a few days later as the news began to spread. And the evidence that Langley was motivated by the wrong thing the day the Wright brothers took flight, he quit. He had all the resources to actually improve the technology, but he quit because he wasn't first and he didn't get rich. It is not enough to just know what you do. The greatest success is tied to knowing why you do what you do. Now, I didn't call you here today to give you an aviation lesson. I came here to give you something of a higher degree, I believe. And so if you'll take your Bible and head to 2 Corinthians, the book of 2 Corinthians, I want to show you something today. I, I would consider the guy who writes... 2 Corinthians, he's the same guy that write, wrote much of the New Testament. He is one of the most remarkable people in the Bible, and he is a man who understands the power of why. His name is Paul. At one time, he persecuted people who followed Jesus. Now, he's a Jesus follower, and he's a part of the being persecuted. But what he has shown evidence of in his life over and over and over again is that Paul is now willing to die for what he has been called by Jesus to do. He knows the what. And today we're going to really focus on one verse, but we got to back up a little bit and read a few more so that we can make sure we understand the context of that verse, all right? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, check out verse 11. Verse 11. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God. I hope it is also plain to your conscience. Let's just stop. What is Paul doing? He says, I'm persuading I'm persuading others. It means to, to, to seek the favor of. I'm seeking the favor of others. And I want you to understand, he's not just attempting to persuade in terms of who Jesus is. But in this context, he's also attempting to persuade in terms of who he is. You see, the context of 2 Corinthians is that some false teachers have moved into Corinth. They are not teaching the truth of God. They are teaching lies. And so they go after Paul's integrity. They attack his integrity. If you read 2 Corinthians thinking that context, you will find in almost every chapter he's dealing with defending his own character. He's dealing with defending his own integrity. Some of you thought you're the only one on the planet who has to do that all the time. Nope, the Apostle Paul. At the church, one of the churches that he started. But these false teachers come in and they want to steal the platform that Paul has built in Corinth where with blood and sweat and tears he has shared the good news of Jesus. Now they want to rip that away from him and use the same platform to spread lies. And so Paul knows if they leave listening to him and they start listening to these teachers, it means they're leaving the truth and they're listening to lies. But what he says here, I love it. He says, we know what it is to fear the Lord. 
In other words, Paul is a smart man. He fears God more than he fears people. Because he knows that God sees everything and God knows everything. And so now he's saying, I want you to see my heart like God sees my heart. He knows if there is no favor and there is no trust, they're not going to listen to the truth. Verse 12. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than in what is in the heart. What we read from 1 Corinthians is that these false teachers had been leading people to take pride simply in their outward appearance. You are to take pride in, in, in what you say and what you do, and it's all about how people see you. It's all about the actions that you have. It really has nothing to do with your heart. The show is what matters most. What matters most is looking good. And Paul says, I'm not concerned with making myself look good, but I do want you to know there is good in my heart. Verse 13, if we are out of our mind, I like this, as some say it is for God, if we're in our right mind, it is for you. Now when you read Paul's writing, you know he's a passionate man. He's a zealous man and every once in a while he gets fired up. And so apparently they're accusing him of being insane. He's out of his mind sometimes. It's because of the passion that he brought to this. And what he's saying here is, look, if, I'm, if it looks like I'm acting crazy, if it seems like I'm out of my mind, it's because what we're trying to wrap our hands and our hearts around is this is, this is the word of the living God. This is eternal truth. This is divine revelation. This is a, a mandate from heaven. He's, I think he would say, how can you not get fired up about that? But he says, if I'm fanatical, it's because I'm speaking the word of God. But if, if, I'm, if I'm calm, it's because I'm trying to be patient enough for you to catch on to what I'm saying. And then we get to the verse that I want you to see. We're going to hang out here for a few minutes. Verse 14. For Christ's love compels us. Because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore, all died. Paul, you obviously know what you're called to do, man. But why? What is it that compels you? What is it that drives you? What is it that motivates you? Paul, what's your why? Christ, love, compels. Now I want us to be really clear on something. I don't believe that Paul is referring to his love for Christ. Now does he love Christ? Yes. Is his love for Christ important? Certainly. But I don't think what he's talking about here is his love for Christ. What he's talking about here is Christ's love for him. And the reason I believe that is because the context of this, if you keep reading, it's talking about Christ's death. It mentions his love and then it talks about his death. And we're going to look at that phrase in just a few minutes. But remember what I told you last week? When you read throughout the Bible and you look at the people who are closest to Jesus, 
it really appears that they are much more preoccupied with his love for them than they are their love for him. And what we said last week is, do you understand that makes all the difference in the world? If you think it's your love for him that makes this thing hold together, we're in trouble. If you understand that it's his love for you that holds all this together, you got something that's never going to fade away. Paul is overwhelmed by Christ's love, most clearly seen in Christ's death for him. Christ's love compels Paul, in so many of the letters that he writes, takes these moments where he just jumps on this picture of God's love, and it's like he just runs with it. Romans chapter 8, he asks the question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who shall separate us? In other words, he's saying, does anybody understand that the love of Jesus, it's unbreakable? He says, it's not going to be trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. He said, it's neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, this is a love that is inseparable. This is a love that is unbreakable. This is a love that is eternal. And if you ask Paul, what's your why? This is his answer. Christ love compels. That word compels, in its simplest Greek meaning, is a pressure that causes action. Now, it's kind of funny to me because when we hear the word pressure, do we think positive or negative? Typically negative. It's like if somebody's pressuring me, then it's negative, but that's not at all the picture that's given here. This, this is, this is a, a pressure that is most beautiful, a pressure that is most precious, a pressure that causes action. He's saying, I, I am pressured, I am ruled, I am controlled, I am driven by this love that Christ has for me. And out of gratitude for that love, I want to give back to him everything that I have to offer. And so he's defending his ministry. When people are accusing him because his ministry is how he expresses gratitude for this love that Christ has loved him with, a love so great that Jesus would lay down his life. But I want to explain why. Why this love puts such tremendous pressure on me to be grateful. Because Paul not only tells us the why, he gives us the why behind the why. Now what I'm about to share with you um, is pretty deep. I hope it doesn't seem deep, and it probably won't because I'm a pretty simple guy. And so even when I try to go deep, it stays pretty simple. And I hope that that's the way it stays in this moment. But I'm asking you to lock in in this moment because what we're about to talk about some, is really something so significant to who you are if you are a follower of Jesus. Because he says Christ's love compels us because we are convinced 
that one died for all, and therefore all died. Like, all right, I know Jesus died for us, but what does is, what is, what is exactly that mean? We're dealing with a culture where they are accustomed to seeing many animals die because of the sinfulness of people. The instruction was, because of your sin, a sacrifice is required. And so the people were required to bring sacrifices on a regular basis. And so there there were many animals died for the sinfulness of people. Many animals died for even one person. But the Bible also says that those sacrifices were not sufficient to forgive our sin. They were just a picture of our sin being covered. They were all pointing towards something that was coming, and this is what was coming. Many animals died for one, but now one Jesus has died for all. That's good news. No more sacrifices brought to the temple. No more animals die. Many animals died for one, but now one Jesus has died for all. And the clearest interpretation of the wording there is in the place of. That's literally how it reads. One Jesus died in the place of. And in theological terms, in the study of God, what we're talking about here is the word substitution, all right? Now, when we think substitute, most of us either think a teacher or athletics, right? So when I hear substitution, I'm thinking basketball. That's what I think. And I'm watching a basketball game, and there comes a point where somebody checks in at the table, and they substitute. They Take the place of the other person who was on the floor. Well, I'm telling you, long before that was a word that was associated with an athlete, it was a word that was associated with theological things. Jesus did not die as a martyr to show us how noble it is to die for a cause. Jesus did not just die to demonstrate to us what it means to be so devoted to God that he would give his life. Jesus died as a substitute. Jesus died in the place of. Jesus died taking punishment in the place of me and you. And so Paul says, I'm pressured, I'm driven, I'm compelled by this love. This love that Christ has for me because I know one died for all. If one died for all, what I know is he died for me. And for Paul, that meant a guy who had persecuted the Christians. This meant a guy who saw people killed. He was, an, he was an, an egotist, a religionist, a legalist. At one point in Scripture, Paul refers to himself as being the chief of sinners. 
And now he's saying, here's what compels me, that Christ died for all, and that all includes me. But here's what else I want you to see in this phrase. Because it doesn't just say that one died for all. It says one died for all and therefore what? All died. One died for all and therefore all died. In other words, the all that he died for are the all who died. And you're like, okay, I got that. So what? Well, what does that mean? Well, let me start this way because I think what's critical here, it's just as important what Paul didn't say as it is what he did say. Because what he doesn't say here is that one died for all because we all were dead. That's not how it reads. One died for all because we all were dead. If that read that way, you and I would walk away from this text going, yeah, that's because the Bible says that we all have sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God. We, we are all dead in our sin. You understand that dead means dead. That sin doesn't just mess you up, it takes you out. We are not just sick in our sin, we are dead in our sin spiritually. It is as though we are dead in relationship to God. If that's what this said, we would walk away saying that's what he means because we know that's what scripture teaches us about being dead in our sin. But it doesn't say that. It says one died for all and therefore all died. And in this context, I believe with all my heart that he's not talking about a condition of being dead. He's talking about an event. He's saying, Christ died for the all who died when Christ died. Like, well, what does that mean? Let me build it for you again. What is so overwhelming to Paul is that while he was still a sinner, Christ was bearing his sin on the cross. He's saying, while I was the chief of sinners, Christ died, and when he died, he was dying for my sins, my substitute. Romans 6 comes along and makes the statement, we have been united with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. When you come to Jesus and God accepts you into his family, because you repent and you believe. That's what's required. Repentance means to turn. It means a change of mind that leads to a change of direction. It literally means to turn around. Repentance and belief in who Jesus is and what he's done. That's what's required of us. The Bible calls us to repent and believe. But there's something required before that. A sufficient payment. A sufficient payment for my sin. And so Christ died as our substitute 
He bore our sins on the cross. And what he's saying is, therefore, you died with him there. Who are those who died in Christ? They are those who have faith in Jesus. The Bible is not emphasizing here that Jesus made salvation possible. He is emphasizing here that he made your salvation secure. The death of Christ was not to provide a possible salvation, but it was a means to a certain salvation to all who believe because all who believe were in Christ when he died because God so designed it. And Paul is just overwhelmed by this thing. Now, come on, hang with me just a few minutes. Hang with me here, because I told you, this is like, this like takes your brain and just goes, whoa. If Paul was saying, you know, the Lord threw out salvation, and I was smart enough to pick it up. Jesus threw it out there by what he did on the cross, and he made it possible that, that I was smart enough to pick it up. That would be one thing. But what he's saying here is that God, the eternal holy God, sent his son into the world, his sinless, spotless son, who went to the cross to die as a substitute for my sin while I was yet in sin. And what startles Paul is that he was there and actually died in Christ, in the view of God, a substitute Jesus was for him. You're like... Jeff, can you explain that to me? I just did. You're like, but that would take a miracle. I know. In other words, you can't take one lick of credit for that. And I am not smart enough to explain the miracle of all of that. But I do understand the ramification of it. My repentance and faith in Jesus means here comes reconciliation between me and God. Here comes forgiveness of all the sin that I have ever committed. Here comes peace with God here comes deliverance from wrath. Here comes deliverance from eternal death. Here comes deliverance from the curse of the law, the deliverance from sin. And it all came because God sent his son to die for me. And when he died, the old Jeff was put to death with him. And my heart has been transformed. In other words, despite what the teachers in Corinth were saying, my story is not about just the words that I can say or the actions that I can put on show before you. 
my story is anchored in the death of Jesus and in some miracle that, look, when we get to heaven, God can explain to you how he did it for you, but when you put your trust in him, it's as though you died with Christ when he died and you are raised to life. In other words, my relationship with him is not anchored in me. My relationship with him is anchored in him. When you think that your love for him is the rock bottom key to making things right between you and God and securing a salvation forever, you are constantly clamoring and constantly wondering, have I done enough? Have I loved enough? Have I served enough? Have I given enough? Have I done enough? When you know it is anchored in the death of Jesus and you died with him, were raised to life, you are no longer doing what you're doing to get God to love you. You are doing what you're doing because he does. And that's why he ends with verse 15. He died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. In other words, when Christ's love compels you, you will no longer live for you. When Christ's love compels you, you will no longer be selfish in who you live for, what you live for, why you live. I, I want to show you something just to try to put this in some practical terms. Let's see if I can move this. I think one of the biggest challenges that any organization, any business, any team, any church faces can be its own success. Sometimes one of the biggest challenges can be our own success. Because I think that when an organization or a, a business or a team or a church, when you first start, I believe that your what and your why are linked as you start to grow. So it takes resources that you're pouring into what you're doing. It takes time to pour into what you're doing. And so you've got what you are called to do and you've got why you are called to do it. And I think the reason it starts out this way is because typically you got, you got a leader, you got somebody who, who can see it, you got somebody who's got vision, and they are able to communicate that with passion to other people who will join them in that journey, and together they are in pursuit of something bigger than themselves. And so it grows. And it continues, the what continues to grow, the what continues to grow, the what continues to grow. But as the what grows, you can't do it all yourself. If you own a business, you know that. You can't do it all yourself. You're trying to lead an organization, whatever. You can't do it all yourself. And so you hire people who hire people who hire people. And then the people that you hire make decisions based on the what 
But after a while, the why gets fuzzy. It gets fuzzy. And suddenly, there's this split between the what and the why. And what I have learned, how do you know if there's a split? Because the stress goes up and the passion goes down. You find yourself working and you're in a job where the stress is through the roof and your passion for doing what you do is quickly diminishing. Why is that? It's because somebody's lost sight of why you do what you do. Does that make sense? When this gap exists, people who started with you on that journey, they saw the vision for what needed to be done. When that gap exists, they will start saying things like, that's not how it used to be. Even if you're still growing. Growth is happening. The what is increasing. But they'll start saying that that's not how it used to be. What happened? Somebody's losing sight of why you do what you do. When this split happens, you'll start looking more at what the competition does than what you remember you have been called to do. And I'm telling you, this happens in the greatest of companies. Did you know it happened in Apple? Did you know it happened in Starbucks? Did you know that there have been seasons in great, great companies where this split exists because they lost sight of why they do what they do? But the greatest tragedy is if it ever happens in a local church. Because we ain't selling computers. And we ain't making coffee. We are called to share the greatest news in the world. The difference between life and death. And if we lose why we do what we do, it matters. God, please call us back compelled by Christ's love. If you're a Jesus follower in 1 John, at the end of the Bible, even in in Revelation, he talks about our first love. That's what this is. It's a return to your first love. Christ's love compels. And so I'm simply starting to paint the picture for us Have you forgotten what's your why? The answer is Christ's love compels. What's your why? Christ's love compels. And if you need a reminder today, it just so happens that Jesus has given us something extraordinary. He gave it to us for the purpose of reminding us of such love. And if this describes your heart today, 
where some of you experience more stress than you do passion, where some of you just feel like it's just, I'm not, I'm not where I was at one point. This is not like it used to be. May, whatever your circumstance, maybe it's your work, maybe it's your ministry. I'm saying whatever it is, it's a, what's the why? And if you're a Jesus follower, the greatest why in your life is that Christ's love compels you to do what you're called to do. Jesus gave us a reminder. He told us to do this on a regular basis. It involves two elements. For us, it's a little piece of bread, a little piece of a cracker, and we use grape juice. That's what we use. Jesus used wine, the Bible says. The point, I believe, is that it was red. He said, when you eat this bread... You are remembering my body that was broken for you. He says, when you drink this cup, you are remembering my blood that was shed for you. You think he knew that we constantly needed to be called back? You think he knew that we constantly needed to be reminded. Today, that's what we've come to do. There are tables in the back of this room, and in a few moments, we're going to invite you to partake of this very special moment that Jesus calls us to. I, I want to invite you to, you can go as families. You can go with a friend, however you want to do that. Um, we encourage you to just go to the table and you'll take a piece of bread and you'll take a cup of the juice. And I would encourage you not to stand at the table so that somebody else can come behind you. But take that and you can kind of find you a spot somewhere in the room. You can come back to where you're seated if you're together. And take a moment. Together eat the bread. Together drink that juice. And then maybe there's somebody within your group who would just do the simplest of thank yous. And just say a prayer to thank you, Jesus for your body that was broken for us, for your blood that was shed for us. It's a moment to remember. If you are a follower of Jesus, we invite you to be a part of this. Um, regardless of what church you may be a member of, this is about, we believe, the family of God. And so if you are a person who has turned to Jesus and put your trust in him, he died for you and you died with him and you have now been raised with new life. We invite you to be a part of this with us. But the Bible also calls us to let this moment be an examining of our heart. And that we don't take this flippantly. But that we have hearts like Paul's that are overwhelmed by such love. I want you to just listen to the song that's about to be sung. Let this be a moment where you can just be quiet before God. You may want to talk to him, listen to what he's saying. This may be one of those moments where there's some forgiveness stuff that needs to happen with you. It may be that you need to forgive someone. It may be that you need to seek some forgiveness. Um, this is not the moment for people to go, well, I got something in my life, so I just probably shouldn't take this. No, this is the moment where this should drive you to take action on whatever's going on in your life and take it. 
because it moves your heart to action. So I'm just going to pray for us real quick. I want to invite you just to stay where you are for a little bit. Take in this song. And once it's done, then feel free to head to those tables. I'm going to ask you after you do that to just come back to your seat. Just be respectful for everybody else who's going to be taking those moments together. Let's make this a moment as God's spirit moves that we can hear him and that we can follow. God, thank you for such love. Jesus, I'm afraid sometimes we say it so much that in our busyness we fail to slow down long enough to experience what it means to be overwhelmed by such love. God, the miracle of what we've talked about today, God, all of it, I don't even have words for. I don't even know if I can get my head around all of that. I just know what your word has declared. God, we can be right with you. And yes, it's about us turning and it's about us believing, but all of that is because of what you did at the cross and that we died with you there. Thank you for new life. God, I pray for those who may be feeling the effects of the split, where they're still doing what they're supposed to do, but they've lost sight of the why. God, I'm asking in this moment that as you speak, you'll give us a heart that can hear you. God, that you would heal. God, that you would correct. God, that this may be your people, your church, who lives like we are loved. In the name of Jesus.